0: to see God glorified and disciples multiplied through the power of the gospel. What right do you have to be angry? If we're honest with ourselves, every single one of us is angry about something. Anger is that emotion that comes when you expect justice to be done, but instead you encounter injustice. Anger is that feeling that wells up inside your chest when you see something in the world that is not the way that it should be. Whether you remember it or not, all of us at one time or another, when we were very small, we all cried out with loud voices. That's not fair. We all have felt anger. We all feel anger, even as simply as we're driving on the Northway and there's an idiot in front of us who doesn't know how to use their turn signal. We feel anger when we watch the news and the criminal who's as guilty as sin gets away with murder. And contrary to popular opinion, anger is not inherently a sin. The Bible actually commands us, be angry and do not sin. Jesus himself got angry and flipped the money changers' tables when they had unjustly turned God's house into a den of thieves. The Bible actually says that God is angry with the wicked every day. I mean, how can he not be? But the question for us this morning is this, what right do I have to be angry? You see, there's righteous anger that is godly and anger that cries out for justice. But if we're being honest, most of the anger that we feel is not righteous at all. From hatred in your heart to murder in the streets, From simple jealousy to all-out war, from domestic violence to domestic terrorism, anger is the mother of a multitude of sins. Anger is a natural emotion, but whether or not our anger is justified depends entirely on whether or not we see the world rightly. And in Jonah chapter 4, we find a prophet who is absolutely outraged for all the wrong reasons. If you haven't already, please turn with me to Jonah chapter 4. If you have a Pew Bible, it's on page 921. And it seems like only yesterday we started our journey together through the book of Jonah. But let me warn you that as we finish this story today, it's probably not the story that you're used to hearing. Of all the stories in the Bible, Jonah and the Whale is probably one of the most well known that even someone who has never been in a Christian church has heard this story. And I think that's because chapters one through three are such a fantastic story. In a good story, you usually have the hero who struggles to overcome obstacles. And in the end, he saves the day and everyone lives happily ever after. And the way Jonah is presented most of the time is like this. Jonah was a prophet who ran from God, but when he got swallowed by the whale, he owned up to his mistakes. He obeyed God and preached to the Ninevites. And then amazingly... The Ninevites listened to Jonah. God showed mercy, the city was saved, and they all lived happily ever after, right? Like that's the story I got when I was three years old in vacation Bible school. I mean, that's a great story to hear. And if the book of Jonah had ended in chapter three, it would have been a perfectly good story. But the story does not end in chapter three. In chapter four, we're gonna read the part of the story that most people skip over. The part where Jonah... Is furious that God showed mercy to people like the Ninevites. And as we study Jonah 4, my prayer is that we would also look at ourselves, look at the anger that we feel, even the anger that we feel against God, and that we would repent of being angry like Jonah. And instead, we would learn to see others and to view the world the way that God sees them in it. Because in Jonah 4, we're going to see two ways we can be unrighteously angry. First, in verses 1 through 4, we can become unrighteously angry when we forget the grace we've been shown. And second, in verses 5 through 11, we can become unrighteously angry when we forget how God views others. We can become unrighteously angry when we forget the grace we've been shown and how God views others. So let's pray and let's dive into this chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. Um, And let's read the part of the story most people skip over. Dear Almighty Father, without your grace, none of us would have ever believed in you. I pray that you would pour out your grace now in this church so that our eyes can be opened to the meaning of this text. I pray that you would even open the eyes of those who have never tasted your grace so they may know your kindness and your mercy. And we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Look at me in verses one through four. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? So what is Jonah so displeased about? What is he so angry about? If you'll remember last week in Jonah 3, we saw Jonah's mission totally succeed. When he preached to the Ninevites, it wasn't just a couple people who repented. It wasn't just even the common folk who repented. Even the king of Nineveh repented of his sins and cried out to God for mercy. Like, can you imagine that happening in the Adirondacks? I mean, can you imagine if I got up one Sunday morning and preached a normal sermon and suddenly everyone in Brant Lakes is on their knees crying out to God? I personally would be ecstatic. I would be over the moon. I'd be calling everyone. I'd be posting on social media. I would be. I cannot believe this is happening. Like, I believe that preaching changes people and that there's power in preaching. But usually it takes a long time for preaching to change people. It takes a long time to see fruit from preaching. But to see such an absolute revival, to see an absolute overturning of this whole city, For every preacher I know, that's the dream. Every preacher that is, except Jonah. Jonah isn't excited. He's upset. He's angry that the Ninevites have responded so well to his message. He's not just annoyed or aggravated. He's angry enough to die. He tells God, you're too merciful. And I don't want to live in a world where people like the Ninevites are shown mercy. So God, just kill me. And look, if I was God in this moment, I'd be like, okay, boom, dead. I mean, Jonah has been a terrible prophet up to this point. So this is where I say, wish granted. But of course, the Lord is more patient than I am. And he doesn't kill Jonah. But that still raises the question, why is Jonah so angry? Why is he so mad about God being merciful? You see, Jonah was incredibly thankful in chapter two when, Jonah, or when God showed Jonah mercy by sending the fish to save his life. Even back in the book of Second Kings where Jonah shows up, God had called Jonah to go to preach a message, a blessing to King Jeroboam II. And King Jeroboam II was an incredibly wicked and sinful king. But Jonah was happy to go and preach a positive message, a blessing to his people and his country, even though they didn't deserve it. And it's interesting. In verse two, Jonah quotes from Exodus 34. It's actually one of the most famous books in all the Old Testament. It's quoted by the other biblical authors about 20 times throughout the Old Testament. And he quotes this verse and he throws it in God's face like he's mad that God is so merciful. And this verse in Exodus 34 is about a time when Israel deserved to be completely annihilated. But of course, at the time, Moses prayed to God for mercy and God showed mercy to Moses and the undeserving people of Israel. And what's so unbelievable is that Jonah takes this verse about God showing mercy to Israel and he throws it in God's face and he says, God, I knew that you were a forgiving God. That's why I ran. I ran because I knew you would be the kind of God to forgive the Ninevites. Jonah was happy with God being forgiven merciful, merciful enough at least to show him grace and to show his people grace in his country. But to those people, to Israel's enemies, that is not good. Almost every time I've heard the book of Jonah preach, I've heard that Jonah ran from the presence of the Lord because he was scared of the Ninevites. And that makes a lot of sense. The Ninevites were ruthless killers If I'm being honest, I'd be terrified if I got the call to go to preach to the Ninevites. But Jonah 4 tells us that that's not why Jonah ran. Jonah didn't run because he was afraid of the Ninevites. In verse two, we discover that he ran because he hated the Ninevites. He ran because he wanted God to destroy them and he didn't want to give them the chance to repent. Remember in chapter one, that as the ship was about to be torn apart by the storm, Jonah didn't say, turn around. Okay, I'm going to Nineveh. I'm finally going to accept God's will for my life. No, he said, throw me overboard. Because to Jonah, he'd rather die than to see those people be given a chance to be shown mercy. And in chapter four, we see the exact same thing. He's seen the Ninevites throw on sackcloth and ashes and he's probably heard the king's decree for everyone to cry out to mercy. And because he knows God's such a forgiving God, he knows what's probably gonna happen next. He knows that God's gonna show them mercy and Jonah hated the Ninevites so much that he'd die. He'd rather die than see those people receive mercy. And he's angry with God for it. Jonah was really proud to be an Israelite You see, the first words that Jonah speaks in this book are, I am a Hebrew. And Jonah had reason to be proud, of course. Out of all the families of the earth, God chose Israel. But Jonah had forgotten the whole reason God had chosen Israel was not because they were so great or so mighty or so wonderful, but because it was an act of God's grace. And God chose Israel so that through Israel, God could redeem the whole human race, all the sons of Adam and all the daughters of Eve. Jonah made the mistake of thinking that the Israelites were deserving of grace in the Ninevites' word. And the thing is, of course, Jonah is half right. The Ninevites did not deserve God's mercy, but Jonah had forgotten that neither did he and neither did the nation of Israel. Jonah had forgotten that he deserved nothing but death for running from the Lord. Jonah had forgotten that the king of Israel was just as bad at this time, if not worse, than the Ninevites. Jonah had forgotten that it was only by the grace of God that Israel was chosen in the first place. But in Jonah's mind, Israel deserved God's grace, but those people didn't. And so now I think about myself I'm a Christian. I'm proud to be a Christian. I believe Christianity is true. I believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. But that makes it very easy for Muslims, Jewish people, atheists, Mormons to become those people. I'm an American. I'm proud to be an American. I love this country. But of course, that makes it easy for foreigners and immigrants to become those people. I'm white and that's not a bad thing. Our God paints in every color and it's a beautiful way that God creates all kinds of people in his image. But it makes it easy for anyone who's not white to become those people to me. I'm not a wealthy man. So that makes it easy for me to view wealthy people as those people. I live in Brant Lake, so city people can become those people. I'm not from the Adirondacks, so Adirondackers can become those people. I live here year-round, so summer people can become those people. I didn't go to Word of Life, so Word of Life people can become those people. On and on the list can go. And any way in which someone is different from me can be a way for me to treat them as lesser. It can become a way for me to see others as less deserving of God's grace. So let me ask you this. Are you tempted to believe that you're more deserving of God's grace because you're not like those people? Maybe it's even a sin issue. Are you tempted to believe that you're more deserving of God's grace because you don't sin like those people? I remember when I was a teacher at a Christian school and I had two students tell me with no shame, they were sleeping with their girlfriends. I was their Bible teacher, by the way. And I had students say to me, it's no big deal, God understands. But those same students, it it just shocked me that when the, the subject of gay people came up, gay people were unforgivable. My sin's no big deal. Their sin's a big deal, not mine. My sin is tiny. And it's really easy to see the speck of dust in your brother's eye and to miss the plank stuck in your own. And there's a real danger for us to think of other people or other people's sins as unforgivable when we forget the grace that we've been shown. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I'm glad you're here. But you need to know that the people around you who are Christian, none of us are Christians because we were such good and holy people that we righteously became Christians. In fact, the only reason we're here is because all of us at one point in our lives realized how sinful and unworthy of God's grace we really were. You see, the Bible tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned in one way or another, and that sin has condemned us before a holy God. The Bible says that even our good deeds are but filthy rags before God. That all we deserve for our sin is judgment and destruction. That all of us deserved what the Ninevites deserved and what Jonah deserved. But the good news is that the God of the Bible is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That 2,000 years ago, God sent Jesus to be born of a virgin, to live the perfect life that you and I have failed to live. Jesus was the only person who ever deserved God's mercy and kindness. He was the only one who never sinned. But in spite of his perfect life, He voluntarily laid down his life in the place of the guilty. Jesus was nailed to the cross as a substitute for sinners. And all of God's holy wrath and anger was poured out on Jesus that day to pay for the sins of all. And then three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, proving that Jesus was God's Messiah. Proving that Jesus' sacrifice had paid for our sins past, present, and future. And now, if anyone will call on Jesus, humble themselves, and put their faith alone in his sacrifice, they would have all their sins forgiven. And that's the story of every Christian in this room. As Christians, we don't believe we're going to heaven because we've worked hard to earn heaven, but that Jesus has already earned it for us. As Christians, we have no right to be prideful or to look down upon others because we were hell-bound sinners until God showed us mercy. And he cleaned us up and he gave us the gift of his perfect righteousness. That now by the blood of Jesus, by his life, death, resurrection, you are perfect in the eyes of God and cleaned up. Not because you deserved it, but because of God's mercy. And somebody say amen. Amen. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here's the warning for us this morning. When we forget the gospel. When we forget the grace that we've been shown in Jesus, we, like Jonah, can easily see others as lesser. Jonah saw the Assyrians as those people who didn't deserve God's mercy because he forgot that he didn't deserve God's mercy. And that's why in verse four, God looks at Jonah and says, do you have any right to be angry? And the answer is obviously no. Jonah had no right to be angry. But strangely enough, we don't hear Jonah's answer. We never get an answer from Jonah. And I think the reason we don't get an answer is because when we're angry, we are left to ask ourselves, do we do right to be angry? If you can remember the grace you've been shown in Jesus, the answer 99 times out of 100 is no, my anger is not righteous. And that's the first way we can become unrighteously angry by forgetting the grace we've been shown. And that leads me to the second way we can become unrighteously angry, by forgetting how God views others. Look at me to verse five. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, and he made a booth for himself there, and he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. It seems like Jonah is expecting the city to be spared, but he's holding out hope that God's still going to destroy Nineveh. So he heads outside of the city, He sets up his lawn chair like it's the 4th of July and he's hoping to see some fireworks. But even though Jonah's done with his mission and he turns his back on God and walks out of the city, God's not done with Jonah. Verse six, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plan. A couple things here real quick. In verse one, Jonah was exceedingly displeased because God showed mercy to the Ninevites. But now in verse six, all it took was some shade in the desert to make Jonah exceedingly glad. And of course, in Jonah's defense, it is the Middle East. The heat is deadly out there. And if you've ever gotten some good shade in a place which was extremely dry and heat, it can make a world of difference. Why did God appoint this plant to give Jonah some shade? Well, verse six says to save him from his discomfort. And it's important to to know that word discomfort can also mean the word evil. It's literally the word evil. So you can literally translate verse six as God appointed a plant to save Jonah from his evil. You see, our God is so much wiser than than we are. He's so much smarter than we are. It's not just that God has a reason for everything he does. It's that God has 10,000 reasons for everything he does. And if you're lucky, you may be aware at any given time in your life of one or two reasons why the Lord is doing what he's doing in your life. But in Jonah 4, let me ask, why did God send Jonah to the Ninevites? The prophet Amos was right there, faithfully serving as a prophet during this time in Israel, And I mean, Amos would have gotten the job done without any protest, without any problem. He wouldn't have fled. Like Jonah on paper is probably the worst candidate for the job. (laughs) Like, can you imagine if we got together as a church and we're like, we want to send a missionary to Russia. And so we form a missions committee here at the church. And we get a guy to come in to interview to be a missionary that we would send out as a church. And so we sit down in the interview it's the members of this committee that we've formed and this candidate, and we sit down around a table, and so we ask this guy, why do you want to go to Russia? And he says, oh, I don't, I hate Russia. And we said, well, do you have a heart for Russians at least? And, and you, know, don't, you want to, don't you want them to at least hear the gospel? And he says, oh, no, I hate the Russians. I hate what they're doing in Ukraine. I hate everything about them. I just want them to burn. And then the committee members, we all look at each other and we say, this is our guy. We don't need to meet with any other candidates. When can you start? Like, no, obviously that is not the heart of an ideal missionary. But God didn't just call Jonah to go to Nineveh to save the Ninevites from their evil, but also to save Jonah from his evil. That maybe God didn't just send your neighbor that hates Christianity so that you could share the gospel with them, but so that in the process, you would also become a more compassionate person. Maybe God gave you that family member who just lives a fragrantly immoral life, not just so that you could be a light to them, but so that in the process you could also become a more patient and understanding person. So God appointed a plant, not just to give Jonah shade, but also to save Jonah from his evil. And that's not all he does. Look with me to verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. Stop again. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And we see that clearly in this voice, this verse. That Jonah's exceedingly good mood is gone as quickly as it came. And once again, he's praying to die. So then in verse nine, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And notice real quick that God repeats his question from verse four. But now he's using this plant to get Jonah to think. And then God continues in verses 10 through 11, the ending of the book. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? And that's how the book ends. With God asking Jonah if he can pity even the cattle of Nineveh. It's probably the strangest ending of any book of the Bible, Once again, we never hear Jonah's answer. The story ends on a cliffhanger, and it ends on this question. Should I not pity Nineveh? That Jonah had pity on the plant, but of course he had forgotten that in Nineveh were 120,000 people made in the image of God. See, as wicked as cities oftentimes are, God loves cities because there's people in cities. That's where when you see the apostles setting out and spreading the early church, they go to the cities and they spread the gospel because that's where the people are. Every single human being, whether they realize it or not, is made in the image of God. And when God created the world, he created all the birds of the air and the creatures of the deep and the animals of the land. But his final creation was mankind, which he made specially in his image. And every human being, no matter their Age or ethnicity or nationality or even their religion or what sins they commit is intrinsically valuable and worthy of kindness, dignity, and respect. And when Jonah was called to Nineveh, he forgot that despite their many sins, despite the fact that the Ninevites were Israel's enemies, they were still sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, created in the image of Almighty God. And the Ninevites didn't even have the advantages that the Israelites had. The Ninevites didn't even have the scriptures or God's prophets or God's temple. That's why God says they didn't know their right hand from their left. Now, of course, that doesn't mean the Ninevites weren't still morally accountable for their sins. They certainly were responsible for their sins. Otherwise, we wouldn't have read in Jonah chapter 1 verse 2 that the evil of Nineveh had come up before God. If they weren't responsible for their sins, then God wouldn't have planned to judge Nineveh in the first place for their sins. The Ninevites were still guilty, but they certainly hadn't been blessed with the information and the knowledge that Israel had been blessed with. They were less guilty, certainly, than Israel was. And God is saying to Jonah, should I not have compassion on this ignorant people? And of course, this story should remind you of another story from Luke chapter 15. Then in Luke 15, there was tax collectors and sinners drawing near to Jesus, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and complaining against Jesus, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them a few famous parables. First, Jesus told them a parable about a shepherd who finds his lost sheep, and then a parable about a woman who finds a lost coin, and then a parable about a father who finds a lost son. The last one is that famous story of the prodigal son who had run from his father, but who humbled himself and begged for his father's forgiveness. And when he returned, he was welcomed with open arms. But of course, the story goes on as the older brother of the prodigal stood outside the house and refused to go in and celebrate. Because after all, he had never run from home. So the story ends with the father standing outside the house, pleading with the older son saying, son, you are always with me and all that mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And that's how the parable ends. It ends on a cliffhanger. And we never learn whether or not the older son ever came inside to celebrate the return of the younger son. And there are many scholars who think that when Jesus told this parable, he actually based it on Jonah, the prodigal prophet. The prophet who ran away, but who, when he was at the point of death in the grave, cried out to God and God rescued him. And in Jonah chapters one through two, Jonah is the younger brother, the prodigal son. But in Jonah chapters three through four, Jonah is the older brother, proudly sitting outside the city, angry that God would show mercy and refusing to go in. And you'll notice that the parable of the prodigal son the book, and the book of Jonah both end on cliffhangers. And we never learn what Jonah ever did. We never learn how he answered God. We never learn if he ever repented of his anger or if he ever celebrated with the Ninevites. And once again, I think that's on purpose because the point of the story is not whether or not Jonah ever repented or whether or not the older brother ever came inside. The point is for us to answer the questions for ourselves. Should God not pity those people? Doesn't God have the right to welcome home his lost sons and daughters? And will we angrily stand outside or will we come in and celebrate? My prayer this morning was that we could repent of being angry like Jonah, that we could leave that behind and instead that we could learn to see others the way God sees them. Because in Jonah 4, we found two ways we can become unrighteously angry by forgetting the grace we've been shown and by forgetting how God views others. So let me ask you, what are you angry about? Are you angry with God about your life? Do you sometimes wanna cry out and accuse God and accuse him because life seems so unjust? God, how could you do this to me? And at the end of the day, do you do well to be angry? There's a place for honest prayer. There's a a place for us to honestly pour out our hearts to the Lord in prayer. But more often than not, we're quick to accuse God when we don't understand his plan. Have you ever been like Jonah? And Maybe you're not as upfront with your anger as he was, but who are those people who you struggle with? Who are the people you struggle to relate with, the people you struggle to love and have compassion for? Have you forgotten the grace that God has shown you? Have you ever received his grace at all? Well, to end our series on the book of Jonah, I have three pastoral charges. I have three ways we can repent of our unrighteous anger and see others the way the Lord sees them. First pastoral charge. If you've never received his mercy, cry out for it. If you've never received his mercy, cry out for it. If you have here and you'd never put your faith and trust in Jesus, do so today. Jesus is kind and compassionate. He has been patient with you your whole life, and you need to realize that his kindness and his patience has been meant to lead you to repentance. So today, turn from your sin, turn from your guilt and your shame, and turn to the one who died to wash away all of it. Cry out for the mercy of God, and Jesus will respond and he will heal you, and he will forgive you. Second pastoral charge. Have compassion on everyone made in God's image. Have compassion on everyone made in God's image. Jonah hated the Ninevites so much that he would rather die than live in a world where God gave them mercy. And I'm hoping that nobody in here has that same level of hatred for others. But let me ask, who in your mind are the people who least deserve the grace of god are you able to love people enough to share the gospel with them are you able to love those who aren't like you at all that if you're from the adirondacks can you love someone who's not can you love those city people can you love those flatlanders that if you're not from here can you love those who are can you love those who are the opposite political party Is a lost person's soul more important than your political ideology? Can you love those of a different skin color, those who are of a different nationality, those who speak a different language, those who are just not like you in any way, shape, or form? Maybe it's not another kind of person, but another kind of sinner. Can you, like Jesus, be a friend of sinners? Can you eat and drink with sinners and tax collectors and invite them to believe in Jesus? Can you be bold enough to share the gospel with alcoholics and drug addicts and the homeless and even those who live blatantly immoral lives? This got me in a bit of trouble a few weeks ago, so I'm going to say it again louder for anyone who has questions. At this church, we believe God created human beings in his image, and he created them male and female. We believe there are only two genders. We believe that God created marriage as a lifelong commitment between one man in one woman, in any sexual activity outside of that marriage commitment is sin. We don't believe that because that's our opinion. We believe it because that's what the Bible says. But all that being said, all that to be said about what the Bible says, are we tempted to believe that we're more deserving of God's grace because we don't sin like those people? And once again, I wonder, if someone who is gay or transgender started attending this church, would they be welcomed or would they be shunned? Would you offer them grace the same grace Jesus has given to you or would you shrink back like Jonah? And the world may say it's impossible to love the sinner yet hate the sin, but if it is possible, I want us to be that kind of church. I want us to be the church that does both because we believe Jesus died for all kinds of sinners and all kinds of sin. He died for Adirondackers and he died for city people. He died for black people and he died for white people. He died for Muslims and Jewish people and atheists and even Baptists. He died for those who struggle with heterosexual sin and homosexual sin. And the question for us is this, can we in love call all kinds of sinners to receive the mercy of Jesus? Final pastoral charge. Let go of your anger and trust the Lord's plan. Let go of your anger and trust in the Lord's plan. God decrees and permits all things that comes to pass Everything that happens, happens because God ordains it. And he does everything for at least two reasons. For his own glory and for the good of those who love him. And that means for you, Christian, is that everything that happens in your life was ordained by God for good. And no matter how dark the road, no matter how bitter the cup, no matter how much you don't understand why what is happening is happening Even in those moments when your life feels anything but good, God has purposed it for good. And when you want to shake your fist at God, when you're angry at how messed up the world is or even how messed up your own life is, let me say, let go of your anger and trust in him. His ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Our God is good, gracious, faithful, tender, and patient. And all the people of God said, amen. Amen. On that note, let's pray. Dear God of all mercy, thank you for the sweet story of Jonah. May we never forget the grace you've shown us and continue to give us the compassion to see sinners the way you see them. And all these things, may these words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hi, Taylor Callen, pastor of Fork and Baptist Church. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon. I pray that you are more encouraged and love Jesus and the gospel more after hearing the sermon than when you first sat down to listen to it. Know that that our heart at this church is that this sermon would be an encouragement to you and would be a useful resource, but would in no way replace the pastor that God has called to shepherd you or the church that you're called to be a member of. With that being said, if you want more information about our church or want to hear more sermons, go to HoriconBaptist.com.